a blessing it is to worship the Lord in singing, and now we want to continue to worship him through the reading and preaching of his word. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, as we begin our Summer in the Psalm series today. A psalm is essentially a sacred song or poem that's meant to be sung to accompaniment in the worship of God. And the book of Psalms is the divinely inspired collection of these songs of praise, which was originally Israel's hymn book and were continually used also in the early church for worship. And so the biblical Psalms were written more for doxology than doctrine. In other words, they were to be used primarily in the worship of God, not just the study of God, really giving us the, the language we need to express our thoughts and emotions to God in prayer and praise. Now, there are 150 individual psalms in the Old Testament book of Psalms, and they cover a wide variety of topics and truths of experiences and exaltations and all in, as you know, beautiful poetic form. In this morning's text, Psalm 19, is a prime example of this pattern. It is chocked full of theology that then leads to doxology, to worship in a beautiful form. C.S. Lewis once wrote, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And that's quite high praise. So let's now see what it's for as we read Psalm 19 together. So please follow along as we read this beautiful, poetic, powerful Psalm. To the choir master, a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful again for this opportunity to now come to your word, the Holy Scriptures, and to see what you have to say to us in them. We pray now that you would give us ears to hear 
and the desire to do what you say and be blessed in that doing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, I was having a conversation with one of our neighbors about religion, and after I explained to him sort of the basics of Christianity, he admitted to me, you know, I do believe in God. I, I just don't know who exactly he is and which religion is right about him. I wish God would just speak and let us know who he is and what he requires of him. Well, appreciating his honesty, I simply responded, but God has spoken. Maybe you just haven't been listening. Now, what did I mean by that? Well, I meant what David is saying here in our text. In Psalm 19, this great godly king of Israel definitively demonstrated that the one true God of all has not kept silent, but rather has spoken clearly. And first of all, David tells us that God has spoken to us in his world. We see this in verses 1 to 6. Contemplating the immensity and also the intricacy of the universe and, and how it all fits together perfectly, any objective observer would have to conclude that an almighty creator has designed all of this. The theological term for this, for this disclosure of God and creation, is called natural revelation. And that's what the first six verses of our text are all about. And what we discover here, first of all, is that natural revelation is clear. So verse 1, David begins, he says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, using similar terminology as from Genesis 1, David establishes here how one part of creation, the heavens and sky above, we could say everything up there in outer space and in our atmosphere, it reveals not only the existence of but the glory of God, all of his manifold perfections, right? It declares this, while also, David says, proclaiming his handiwork, that this vast universe and everything in it, big and small, is the masterpiece of this master craftsman, God, or in the Hebrew, Elohim. In other words, David says the creation is telling of its creator, which is clear to all who have eyes to see it. Isaiah 40, 26, the prophet says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Right? Natural revelation is first and foremost clear. It clearly reveals the one who designed it so perfectly and made it all. But secondly, we also see in verses 2 to 3 that natural revelation is constant. David goes on, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. 
So the universe, in a sense, is, is preaching a soundless sermon about the glory of God. And it's doing this always, right? David says, day and night, the sky broadcasts a silent symphony about its grand composer, right? Creation, as Paul, uh, David says, revealing knowledge of its creator, not by its words, as he says in verse three, but rather by its wonders. Now, the other night I watched an exquisite sunset, stunning yellows and oranges and reds all bursting through the gray and purple clouds. And in a sense, it was soundlessly singing praises to God. And then later I looked out on this star-filled sky and it was all too exalting its creator as if it was a, a quiet choir just saying constantly, clearly, there is one who made this beautiful, beautiful sky. Have you heard it too? Speechless speech and wordless words of this world and its wonders that just ceaselessly worship the one who made it all. Psalm 148, three to four, praise him sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heaven. Natural revelation is constant. It's, it's constantly, day and night, declaring the glory of God. But then finally, in verse 4 and 7, we also see that this natural revelation is comprehensive. David says, The voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber. What an interesting image of the sun. You can just imagine it beaming like, like Joe is going to be beaming in a couple weeks after his wedding, right? And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there's nothing hidden from its heat. So, David's using this wonderful poetic image that just as the sun moves across the sky to every point on the earth, right, from our perspective, so the, the sermon of the sky that reveals God's glory, it goes out throughout the earth. And as nothing can hide from the sun's heat, so no one can hide from this reality. Romans 1, 19 to 20, Paul says the same thing. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So church, none can escape the obvious that uh, this grand creation has a, a glorious creator. God has spoken, David is telling us here. The question is, again, are we listening? Or are we suppressing this truth in unrighteousness? Henry Ward Beecher was friends with the renowned agnostic Robert G. Ingersoll, who was one day visiting his home, and he noticed a celestial globe in Beecher's study, which 
was an outstanding representation of the constellations and the stars contained within them. Well, impressed with this globe, Ingersoll exclaimed, this is just what I've been looking for, just what I wanted. And then he asked Beecher, who made it? Who made it? Beecher replied with a bit of a smile on his face. Oh, nobody made it, Colonel. It just happened. God has spoken to us in his world. It clearly, as David says, declares his glory. It clearly demonstrates there is one who made it all. But there's more. David goes on to tell us that God has also spoken to us in his word. So natural revelation reveals God as the almighty creator. And in verse 1, the word God there in the Hebrew, it's Elohim. But how can we know this creator personally? How can we know him not just as God in some impersonal way, but as our God? How can we know him as more than our God, but our Redeemer? Because Paul also said in Romans 1.18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What are we to do about that? What are we to do about our sin? What are we to do about the fact that we have not worshipped the creator? But as Paul says in Romans 1, instead we've worshipped the creation. Well, this is where biblical revelation comes in to the picture, the Holy Scriptures, which we refer to as God's Word, because He is ultimately the source of it, the source of the Scriptures, as Paul asserts in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, this is also what David asserts repeatedly in our text. He uses various synonyms all about the Scriptures. And it always ends with the same words, of the Lord, or in the Hebrew, of Yahweh, who is the personal, promise-making redeemer of Israel. He is the source. So notice, Paul says, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. The point's been made, right? The scriptures are of the Lord. Now, since the Bible is of the Lord, it's God's word, it's God's book, we shouldn't be surprised that it is utterly unique. First of all, we see that biblical revelation is complete, Notice, David describes the Bible in eight ways here, all of them pointing to its distinctiveness. So he says, the law of the Lord, verse 7, is perfect. Then he says, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord, which is an interesting way of talking about the scriptures, talking more about what it does, but he's still talking about the scriptures here. He says, the fear of the Lord is clean. Then the end of verse 9, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. That's quite the list, isn't it? 
Can we say that about any other book? That it's perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, righteous altogether? No, we can only say this about the scriptures. Why? Well, because their source is not fallible men that would make it impossible to say things like it's perfect, but rather its source is infallible God. And this is verified in so many different ways, but most of all, by its own divine character and consistency and completeness. You know, people will often ask, how do you know that the scriptures are truly the word of God? And of course, we can point to many different things, the incredible hundreds of fulfilled prophecy, uh, the way that the scriptures change lives like nothing else, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Just check out any apologetics book. It's there. We have so many reasons. But the ultimate reason we can believe the scriptures are actually of the Lord is because of their self-attesting nature. A man by the name of Mr. Thompson had never read the Bible and he doubted it was God's word. And so one day he asked a Christian friend, what book should I read to convince me that the Bible is true, that it is actually God's word? Well, the friend replied to him wisely, before you read any other book, read the Bible itself. And so this man did just that. And later he admitted to his friend, I've been trying to see if I can add or take away anything that could make it better, but I can't. This book is perfect. It is the word of God. As the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Biblical revelation is first of all, complete. But then second, it is also compelling. Notice David goes on to assert that there are six ways the scriptures change us. So he says, starting in verse seven, that it revives the soul. And then later, it makes wise the simple. Verse 8, it rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. And then verse 11, moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Again, quite the list of things that the Bible can do. In other words, what, what David is saying is, is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 17, that the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation and equip us for every good work. It's similar to what David said in Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That is what the word of God, the scriptures can do in us. I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers once said. He said, a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. And I'm sure that all of us could attest to that. 
So we've seen that either in our own lives or the lives of countless others. The truth of God's word transforms us, transforms people like nothing else. Why? Because its transformation is from the inside out. But most importantly, what God's word can do is it brings us to a saving knowledge of God himself in Christ. In 1857, Spurgeon was scheduled to preach at the Royal Surrey Gardens. And the day before the event, he, he came by earlier to visit the building and test the acoustics. Well, standing up in the pulpit, he cried out in a loud voice from John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, unbeknownst to Spurgeon, a maintenance man was finishing some work way back in the building. And when he heard this one verse declared with such conviction, he was convicted immediately about his own life, about his own sin. And he immediately put down his tools, he went home, and he soon found salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Biblical revelation is compelling. But then finally, David tells us that biblical revelation is also cherished. In verse 10, he says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Gold was the most valuable and treasured commodity in the ancient world. And fine gold of a particular high grade or rare variety was, of course, especially precious. Well, David asserts here that the scriptures are even more precious, more desired than, notice, much fine gold. More than heaps and piles of it or any other treasure. Psalm 119.72 says the same thing. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. But that's not all. David goes on and he admits that to him, the scriptures are sweeter than honey. Which was also a rare delicacy in Old Testament times because there were no domesticated beekeepers. And so to say that the scriptures are sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb, right, the real premium stuff, it's to say that it is better than the most sought after and savory foods, the sweetest food you can imagine. Which reminds me of what Job said in Job 23, 12. He said, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Mary Jones was a poor Welsh girl who desperately wanted a Bible of her own. And so she, for six years, she worked odd jobs, saving her pennies until she finally had enough to purchase her own Bible. Well, she was directed from someone at her church to the Reverend Thomas Charles. He'd acquired a number of Bibles for distribution. But he lived 25 miles away. And so the day she had enough money, she went out to his hometown and the whole time thinking of nothing else, but finally being able to purchase a Bible of her own. 
But when she arrived at the reverend's home that evening, the pastor sadly informed her he only had two Bibles left and they were both spoken for. The little girl was heartbroken. She she placed her, her hands in her face and she wept. But seeing the girl and just how desperately she desired a Bible of her own, the Reverend Charles immediately rose up out of his seat and with tears in his own eyes, he gently said to her, my dear child, I see now that you must have this Bible. It is impossible to refuse you. Handing, handing her a Bible, her eyes were now t- filled with tears of joy. And on her journey home, she praised God for this treasure, exclaiming over and over again, it's really mine, my own Bible. Now, why would a little girl, or for that matter, a great king like David or anyone else cherish the Bible like that? Well, for the same reason, a starving man cherishes food. A sick man cherishes medicine. A drowning man cherishes a life preserver because the scriptures offer a dying world the only way to life. John Wesley, the 18th century preacher and founder of Methodism declared, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself is condescended to teach the way for this end he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. Again, Psalm 119, 157 says something similar. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. Church, God has spoken in his world, in his word. Are we listening? Do we have ears to hear this life-changing truth? If we do, his revelation will change us. And we will grow to treasure it. Because it points us to the greatest treasure of all, God himself. But that's not all we will then also want to respond in the only fitting way, which takes us to the final point of our passage, that God has spoken to us for his worship. So after meditating on who God is, what God requires, and what God has done for us, as revealed in his world and his word, David can't help but conclude in these final verses with worship. Since the Lord has spoken to us, it follows that we would now speak back to him. The creation giving the due recognition and honor and praise to its creator. I think of the hymn, for the beauty of the earth, for the beauty of the skies, for the love which from our birth over and around us lies. Lord, to all, to thee we raise. This our hymn of grateful praise. That is the proper response as we consider God's revelation of himself to us. Now, considering David's example, we are specifically to worship him in this way. First of all, we see in verse 12 that God's revelation should lead to confession. 
David says, who can discern his own errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. So David recognized how easy it is to fall into hidden faults or sin of ignorance, which the Old Covenant law prescribed a sin offering for in Numbers 15, 27 to 29. So you can look there later and see what he's talking about here. Freshly aware of God's great glory and goodness in natural and biblical revelation, David was deeply troubled at the thought of unintentionally sinning against this good and gracious Lord. And so he acknowledges here his own hidden errors and he asks God to forgive him. And this, of course, should always be the first response when we grow in the knowledge of God and his glory, in his world, in his word. That we would first and foremost then humbly confess how we have fallen so short of his glory. Search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. That's what we read in Psalm 139, 23, 24. And it's the same thing David is saying here. God's revelation led him, first of all, to confession. But then secondly, God's revelation should also lead us to consecration. Verse 13, David goes on, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So David also recognized the chilling seriousness of presumptuous sin. That is sin that is done willfully. Which under the old covenant law called for excommunication. And we see that in Numbers 15, 30 to 31, to be put out of the people of Israel and therefore not to have that same close fellowship with God. This would be a far worse consequence. And so David consecrates himself, <coughs> consecrates, sorry, himself to the Lord. He prays that he would be kept back from the dominion of sin, from its power over him so that he could rather live a holy life and therefore enjoy close communion with God. Which should be what all of us want, who've come to know God in his world and in his word. That we then would want to follow this God and fellowship with him more closely. Not just know him, you could say, from afar in his creation and in his word, but know him personally. Turn to me and be gracious to me, we read in Psalm 119, 132, and 33. As is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. God's revelation should lead to that kind of consecration of our lives. But then finally, God's revelation should lead to commitment as it did for David in his final verse, verse 14. These famous words of commitment, of dedication. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So again, contemplating God's word to us, David concludes by committing his words to God. So that what he thinks and what he says would be an acceptable sacrifice to this God who is his rock, his redeemer, his strength, his savior. 
David's saying, I've seen in the skies that you've made me, and I've seen in the scriptures that you've redeemed me. And so I want to now dedicate my thoughts, my words, my whole life to you, to your worship, to your glory. Listen, God's revelation of himself demands nothing less than that, than a full commitment of ourselves to him. God has spoken to us in his world and in his word so that we might then speak back to him in worship. That really sums up what this psalm is about. And yet, as we read on in scripture, past the life of David, and we come to the New Testament, we discover that there's still a greater reason to worship. There is still greater revelation. After I made that comment to my neighbor that God has spoken, he said, oh, you mean the Bible. Okay, but how do I know that the Bible is true? How do I know that it's God's word? Why can't God just come and show himself to us and definitively tell us the truth? But he has, I said, with a smile on my face. And his name is Jesus. Jesus Christ came and he claimed to be the Son of God, who showed us God in person and spoke to us as God in person, which he proved by saying what only God can say and doing what only God can do, performing signs and wonders, and most importantly, being raised from the dead, just as he said. And so now, in the church age in which we live in, on, on this side of the resurrection, God has spoken to us not only in his world, not only in his written word, the Bible, but fully and finally in the living word, in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John says at the beginning of his gospel in John 1.14. Which means, more than ever, there's no reason for us to wonder who God is and, and what God expects of us and what God has done for us. No, he has spoken definitively. And the only right response is to worship at Jesus' feet. To believe in him and bow down to him, our rock and our redeemer in the flesh like King David did, who had far less revelation and yet was completely overwhelmed by what he saw and heard in natural revelation and the biblical revelation given to him at that time. But just imagine how much sweeter his confession and his consecration and his commitment would have been if he had the personal revelation of Jesus Christ to also meditate on like you and I do today. Church, it is a mighty privilege to hear and see and personally know the one true God. Yes, through his creation. Yes, through his scriptures. But most significantly, through his son. And so let us not take that for granted, but rather make the most of the ways that God has spoken. Meditating on God's revelation. Most of all, meditating on God's son. Until we are moved to worship and praise his name, just like David did.
just like the church has done all these years. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Hebrews 13, 15. May that be true for us today and every day. And let's pray now that he would give us the grace to do that. Lord, we are so thankful that you have spoken to us in your world, your creation that declares your glory, and in your word, the scriptures that reveal your truth to us, all that we need to know for faith and godliness. But thank you most of all for your revelation of yourself in the living word, the person of Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose again, guaranteeing, verifying that he is the son of God, that what he said is true and what he revealed about you is infallible. And therefore we can truly know you personally and therefore worship you and live a life in fellowship with you. So Lord, again, help us to be grateful for what you've said, how you've spoken. And may we meditate on these words, on this truth, and be moved to worship you as you deserve. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us online one last time. We just want to encourage you one more time to join us on the 11th as we meet together without any restrictions and we enjoy fellowship and worship on that day. We want to see you. We'd love to see you. We'd love to be all here together on that day. So please consider coming. We will continue to respect each other and our different comfort levels, but we want to be together as one body, worshiping the Lord together. So please consider that. We look forward to that. And until that day, this week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.